Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The world is on a hunt for an effective treatment for COVID-19, and, we, and we've heard a lot of mixed results about the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine and its effectiveness in treating COVID-19. Not wanting to offer false hope, many health experts have urged caution until more studies have been done. But how did all this talk about this drug get started, and why has President Trump pushed for its use so hard? In mid-March, a cryptocurrency investor, a law school graduate, and a self-described philosopher found each other on Twitter and published a paper about the potential. For more on the domino effect that led to hydroxychloroquine being part of the conversation, we'll speak to Tina Wynn, White House reporter at Politico. So when it first broke into, I guess, mainstream consciousness was when Elon Musk, about mid-March or something, tweeted out the link to a Google document written by two people who claimed that they were affiliated with Stanford University and said that they had conducted the research with Stanford, the University of Alabama, all these other very renowned places, saying Chloroquine is the thing that's going to cure the coronavirus. It is a cure. It is preventative. It's freaking magical, essentially. That's my words. <laughs> um, and when Elon Musk tweeted it out, all of a sudden, these two people, James Todaro and Greg Regano, started going on the talk radio circuit. Regano ended up on Fox News, and he called it a second cure for a virus of all time. Uh, and very specifically, he said cure. And the very next day, Donald Trump goes in front of the press pool and says, Chloroquine, this is a very promising drug. I'm making it available immediately. Everyone can take it. There's some very, very promising results. Immediately, Fauci has to step in and say, no, we haven't approved this yet. We're still doing tests on it. And Trump's fascination with the drug makes a lot of sense if you're trying to get rid of the problem as quickly as possible. It's a drug that's already FDA approved. It's out there, it's cheap to manufacture, and it's currently available in like generic form. So if you are Trump and you see a instant cheap cure out there and you want to assuage everyone and make everyone less worried about the coronavirus, you just point to this magic drug and right. there you go. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why it has a lot going for it. It is already FDA approved for other uses. So it's gone through clinical trials in certain senses. So it's not like... Uh, it's something out of nowhere that's going to start killing people on its own. Uh, so you have that going for you. Uh, you have these anecdotal stories where doctors have used it and they said, you know, it helped get rid of the symptoms a lot sooner. You know, but the yeah. biggest worry for the scientific community, guys like Dr. Fauci, is, you know, the biggest worry is offering false hope. You know, what if this doesn't work? And on the president's side, what if it does work? Then he fast tracked it and boom, you know, it, it's something that helped get rid of it a lot faster. So there's kind of uh, pros and cons to this on that front. But when you're thinking about the scientific community, you have to take the, the slower approach. That's why this whole talk about vaccines, we're looking for treatments as fast as we can, but a vaccine is going to be a year, 18 months away, they say. Um, so th this is kind mm -hmm. of the pros and cons of all this. But right away, I know hydroxychloroquine got all the mentions uh, and, and in part, you know, due to kind of blowing up, as you mentioned on Fox News, I think uh, Tucker Carlson had these guys on the show, Laura Ingram also. And Laura Ingram recently had a meeting with the president uh, where she brought some guys to, to talk about how effective this drug was. 
that's the thing with Quarter Queen's emergence on the scene, as it were. The story I wrote was about the discussions that took place before that document I was talking about was written. It was literally three guys on a Twitter thread, two cryptocurrency investors, one guy who is a philosopher who studied out of Wudang province in China, and they were casually talking about these studies, these small-scale studies that had come out of China. And keep in mind, these were really, really small studies, small sample sizes, I think early stage enough that you could say, maybe there's something here, but then there's also maybe seven other drugs in the pipeline that people are testing at once. But in this thread, the main author of that story, Regano, said, just to paraphrase, I want to focus on chloroquine. I want to get this out to the masses as quickly as possible. One of the other people in the thread said, wait, I feel like you're rushing this. And he went, no, the world is burning. We need all of the options on deck immediately. Yeah, and and that's and that urgency when you say words like cure, people are ready to go and ready to take it. So the other thing I want to talk about is some of the studies that they talked about. And also taking a step back, you mentioned also that they said that they were affiliated with some universities or they also helped in some of the studies. What have the universities said, at least with response to that? They were absolutely not involved. Every single academic institution that was listed in that paper as having been consulted said that they had nothing to do with it. Stanford said that Regano was not a medical advisor to them at all. One of the initial co-authors' names was Thomas Broker, and he said, I was not contacted. I did not ask to put my name on this. He's not an expert in coronaviruses. He studies HPV, which is not a coronavirus. Yeah, there was a a lot of um, bad faith going on in the creation of this document, but when you go back to the very beginning of the discussions, you just sort of like raise your eyebrows and go, okay, so if this was the type of discussion you are having while writing this in the span of two days, keep in mind from when he discovered what chloroquine was and started asking about data to immediately publishing and saying, hi, I work with Stanford and here is a cure for coronavirus. Then you have to like really question the motivation behind it. Yeah. The whole rise of this whole thing is, just bit really been a matter of weeks, less than a month, I think. And that's the, you know, this, the wonder drug for it. And even some of the studies that they cited in this, one of them is specifically out of France, where they said they did have some, uh, some success with it. But then later on, they had to go back and say, well, this uh, study really wasn't done up to standards, up to our standards. It wasn't randomized. There was a couple of things wrong with the way they conducted the study. So they had to go back and say, you know, we can't really put our full endorsement behind something like this also. So there's been a lot of stuff said about hydroxychloroquine. It's possible that it could help, but really we just need to do more studies to find out if it could be an effective treatment. But in this time, it's tough. People want something quickly and they want it now. Yeah. I spoke to a woman out of Harvard University. Her name is Joan Donovan. And she pointed out that we're in a situation where there isn't a lot of information and rumors can cause people to... Panic is just one way of putting it, but make decisions based on not a lot of information. And that's definitely something you've been seeing with chloroquine. Um, doctors are worried that people who do take it for their intended purposes, like malaria or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, are starting to find it harder to get access to those drugs. And there might be terrible situations in which someone will take a variant of chloroquine, like chloroquine phosphate, and thinking, oh, that was the drug that Trump told me about, and then die, which is something that actually happened in Arizona. But the politicization around this drug, 
that can't be ignored. There's a small but growing segment online of people who call that and another drug Trump pills. Right, just because the president has been pushing for them so hard. Yeah, the president has been pushing for them so hard, and all of these people in the mainstream media and scientists are saying no, no, no. Does that mean that there's something that they don't want you to know? Do these doctors not want you to know? Right. Yeah, exactly. The conspiracies uh, theories start popping up in, almost immediately after that. You know, why are they keeping mm-hmm. this from us? These whole things. Yeah, there's a, a, you kind of see these things happen a lot, but hopefully we can get some solid studies done on this. And if it does work, that's great. Let's use it. But if it doesn't, you know, we have to know before you can use it widely with a lot of people. Right. Definitely. Tina Wynn, White yeah. House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. Finally, for this week, while we brace ourselves to make it through this pandemic, the scientific community around the world is in a race to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. There are currently at least 43 different vaccines in development around the world, but the process remains slow. While many things have changed about how to develop vaccines, such as being able to target the DNA and RNA of the viruses in quick fashion, the rest of the process, testing in humans and also the manufacturing for wide use, remains very slow. That's why we might still be a year away from an effective vaccine. For more on the work behind the race to develop a coronavirus vaccine, we'll speak to Samanth Subramanian, contributor to The Guardian Long Reads. The vaccine, you know, the principle of vaccination hasn't changed at all, right? I mean, the idea is to get um, your immune system to recognize a virus or a bacteria without actually making you sick. So what they used to do earlier was they used to weaken a virus or a bacteria and they would introduce that into your body and your immune system would recognize it and it would generate all these antibodies that tend to stay in your system. So the body learns to fight this germ. And then when you actually get infected with a with a full strength strain of this pathogen, uh, your body can fight it off. It has all these antibodies and T cells and it can fight these pathogens. So that's how they used to do it earlier. And that was the case for, you know, most of the 20th century. They would uh, take these viruses or these bacteria and they would put them in cell cultures, tissue cultures and labs, and they would try to weaken these strains. And sometimes it was a really tricky process to do. I mean, it's very difficult if you aren't quite, um, you know, in possession of the kind of sensitive equipment that we have right now. The first step forward from that was when scientists realized that, look, you don't have to put the entire virus into a body. Uh, you can just put a part of the virus or a part of the bacteria into the body and the antibodies will still be generated. So they would take like some molecules of a particular toxin that a bacteria would release, or they would take a part of the shell on the outside that the bacteria or the virus have, and they would introduce these molecules into our bodies. And that's, you know, already sort of thousands of times smaller than the bacteria or the virus itself, which are tiny. And then what's happened over the last few years, and really, I mean, you know, this has been in development for a while, but genetic technology has only come up to a particular speed and efficiency and power over the last few years, is that instead of making these molecules, you know, the toxin or the protein shell on the outside, instead of making them in labs or in factories, what scientists have learned to do is to take short snatches of the genetic material of the bacteria or the virus itself which you know has the instructions coded to produce these toxins or these protein shells and so on and put the genetic material directly into a body into a vaccine 
and use our cells, our bodies as factories for making these molecules. So you've gone from introducing the whole pathogen to introducing a part of the pathogen to now introducing the genetic material that codes for a part of the pathogen. So you're just putting the gene, you know, you're synthesizing these genes outside in a lab and you're putting those genes into your body. Now, I should mention that this last bit, uh, the vaccines that use DNA or RNA, these genetic material vaccines, you know, these are completely unproven. You know, they've, they've right. been sort of tested in labs. Um, there's been a couple of human trials, but we haven't ever had a real world vaccine out there that works on this principle yet. So it's really fast to do, but we still don't know whether it's going to work, if it will go through human trials and succeed and get out on the market for all of us to use. And that's one of the interesting parts about this is that, as you were mentioning beforehand, scientists had to use parts of the actual virus. They were dealing with that organism there. And now a lot of this stuff is being done on computer modeling. Uh, you know, after China released the full genome of the coronavirus of COVID-19, scientists were immediately getting onto it to start seeing what they can do, what they could use to try to per, uh, make effective vaccines for it. That's right. I mean, I think like because sequencing the genome of a small organism like a bacteria or a virus is now so quick, you know, they have that. They had that online in like mid-January. And as I say in my story, I mean, that's sort of like a starter pistol for all these scientists everywhere to look at this genome and try to understand what parts of this virus uh, they might want to play, introduce into our body and what parts of the genome code for those sections of the virus, these subunits of the virus. And so really that that's the you know, that's the powerhouse beginning to this entire process. And then, as you say, quite rightly, I mean, a lot of the work happens on computers right up until they actually synthesize these genes. Everything's happening online. All this modeling is happening with software. And then they get these genes back and then they start to deal with real world testing on mice and other animals. And this is the part that takes, obviously, the longest part now. I mean, we're just talking about how quickly now they can get this candidates they can figure something out but the real world testing the human trials and then the manufacturing of this this is the slow part yeah both of these things are slow so human trials can only proceed at the lay at the rate of human physiology right we can't speed our systems up to react quicker or slower to give scientists results so it has to go just as slow as as it'll go um but the, but the problem also is human physiology is so complicated uh we can test these vaccines as much as we want on computers or in mice. But when it comes to putting something into a human body, it's impossible to predict the kind of uh, side effects it'll have, what kind of dosage will work, whether it'll work at all. You know, it's impossible to predict all of this stuff. So that take, takes time. And then the second part of it is just sort of economics in a sense. It's business. Uh, you need a big drug company with the equipment and factories and so on to manufacture these huge doses of vaccines. But very often companies don't want to touch vaccines unless they're sure there's like a profit margin in there for them. So if they, you know, if we come through human trials for this vaccine, say by January next year, let's assume, I don't know if that's the right time scale, but you know, by that time, coronavirus everywhere around the world might have shrunk. The pandemic won't quite be as virulent as it is now. And so companies at that point might look at this and say, well, you know, we don't want to touch this as a product. I right. mean, there's not many people who need to be vaccinated. Most of the world has immunity to it. So what, what's going to happen then? We have no way of knowing. So there's so many moving parts in both how complex human physiology is and in the economics of this. That's why it's going to take 12 to 18 months if we're lucky 
for a vaccine to be out on the market. And we, and we know that's true because it's happened before. There were uh, vaccines in the process for uh, SARS when that was going around. And because, you know, by the time they were getting around to getting something uh, that was viable, everything had calmed down with SARS. So funding for that stuff dried up very quickly. So I, I think this I might I'm hoping this might be a different case because there's a lot more eyes on this. You know, it's this whole uh, big thing that everybody's kind of paying attention to. So hopefully it's different. But, you know, we've gone through this process before, um, you know, the, some of the experts have said that for the cost of this vaccine to produce and manufacture enough to maybe beat a pandemic, it could be about $3 billion. But, you know, as you mentioned, everything is constantly changing with all of this. Uh, for this story, you you actually spoke to um, a Canadian pathologist. His name is Jonathan Heaney. He works with a company who's also working on a possible vaccine. What can you tell us about uh, uh, their work and, and, you know, what you're learning from them? Well, so... Um Heaney's company, which is called Diosynvax, is based here in Cambridge, England, where I live. And, you know, it's just a, the strangeness of the world right now that they're about a 12-minute bicycle ride from where I live. And I was unable to visit because, you know, he can't take the risk of outsiders coming in, possibly carrying a virus and infecting his staff, infecting him. So we had to speak on Zoom, on like video conference, uh, mm-hmm. even though he's so close to where I live. And they, you know, like a lot of other uh, labs and universities and you know companies around the world, they started work as soon as Genome was published on January 12th or just after. Um, what they're doing is kind of different. I think it's more ambitious. Uh, they're trying to build this vaccine that will not just work against this uh, coronavirus disease, COVID-19, but also against uh, you know many members of the family of coronaviruses. You know, so SARS, for example, was caused by a coronavirus as well. And so their idea is to uh, get this vaccine uh, to replicate within us the production of uh, common parts of all these viruses. So every virus has something called a spike protein uh, on the outside of the shell. So they'll make maybe, you know, the va- vaccine will come into the human body and it will make a part of the spike protein that is common across all these coronaviruses. Maybe it will make two or three or four other sections of the same uh, viruses, so there's two or three or four common elements floating around, and the theory is that the antibodies that our body releases will then be able to eventually work against all of these coronaviruses. And this is his thing, right? He needs thing is he has this platform where he uh, he's done this for filoviruses, so um, the West Nile virus, for example, uh, that disease is caused by caused by a filovirus, and he has a platform for that. He's working on a universal flu vaccine, which will hopefully work against every kind of flu out there. So that's his that's his big MO. And, uh, you know, I mean, as I as he says, it's early days. They're still doing trials on mice. Uh, and he, you know, he says quite um, uh, quite clearly that the, the the vaccine field has this graveyard full of dead vaccine candidates. So he's quite realistic about his chances. But it's a it's an ambitious thing to try for, and I, I I had a great time talking to him. Samanth Subramanian, contributor to the Guardian Long Reads. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition. 